0: So it's this classic uh, security dilemma uh, where you don't know uh, what the other side will do, so you prepare for the worst.
1: Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. So hi, everyone. Welcome back to America Explained. Joe Biden's been president for nearly a year now. And during that time, an awful lot's been happening with U.S. relations with China. Um, In order to discuss this, I've invited back on the show one of my very first guests from a year ago, Xiaozhen Martin, who's a China analyst at the think tank, the Klingendahl Institute here in The Hague in the Netherlands. Um, We're going to talk through some of this year's developments uh, in U.S.-Chinese relations, have a little retrospective on the Trump era. And relations between the us and china and, and where that left the two countries and also talk about um where we see the relationship going in the future so thanks so much Xiaoxia, for coming back onto the podcast it's really great to have you here again
0: thanks it's great to be back again
1: since we last spoke thankfully the trump presidency has ended and that isn't to say that the trump era is over because i think there's a really good chance that he might run again in 2024 um, there's a lot of really worrying signs for the Democrats in American politics right now. And I, I remain really worried about that 2024 election and, and the fact Trump may come back. But at least anyway, the first act of the Trump era is over. And, and so it's kind of a good time to have a retrospective on it. I wondered if looking back over that four years in U.S.-China relations, it's possible to say a few things about how that Trump era affected China's perception of the United States and Beijing's own relations with Washington?
0: Yes, I think you can take a look uh, at this issue from two perspectives. First of all, how it affects China behind the scenes in its uh, making of foreign policy. Uh, and on the other hand, how it uses uh, the change in relationship, miscommunications to the outside. You could really see behind the scenes that uh, the relationship under Trump, of course, deteriorated uh, very quickly and to Beijing this really proved uh, the volatility of the United States as a partner and showing how uh, its democratic system is really a problem for US-China relations uh, because you can have a president for four years who will have completely different policies than the previous president, um, meaning that uh, the United States is not really a reliable partner for China And also giving weight to the U.S. hawks in China uh, and giving weight to their argument that China should become more hawkish, uh, should become more aggressive, more dominant uh, in its foreign policy, Uh, making it more complicated as well for those that don't agree with that uh, statement to push for more engagement with the United States and to push for cooperation. Um, And of course, it's very difficult to get opinion surveys in China that are objective. Uh, but it's very clear that the image of the United States among Chinese people themselves has also really been damaged. And this is not only because of uh, uh, Chinese coverage, media coverage, but also simply because of what uh, what has happened in the, fa- the past four years. But outwardly, China's really using Trump's presidency uh, in its PR to show to other countries as well uh, that the United States is reliable and that democracies in general are very unreliable partners uh, and that the Chinese model of authoritarianism with a stable leadership is a much better uh, alternative. Uh, So outwardly China is also using this um, to fuel nationalism uh, domestically and to push for its own model uh, in international relations
1: you know one one of the really shocking things that happened this year um, was the the insurrection on january 6th in washington and this kind of capped a long period in which trump had been essentially trying to to overthrow you know the the american election result and you know basically well we kind of debated do we call this a coup do we call it something else but you know definitely to to, to kind of break the american system of, of constitutional government and is is this something that we've seen China use in its in its propaganda then to point to these particular events that have happened to kind of demonstrate the weakness of of u s democracy? And try then to... So so the U.S. has really been shooting itself in the foot, you know, by, by conducting itself this way. And then China uses this in its propaganda to try to reduce um, the respect of various peoples around the world for America.
0: Yes, that's indeed exactly what happened. And, um, of course, there's various Chinese state media, some of which are more nationalistic and have a more aggressive tone, you could say. Uh, and others are... Um, Uh, withholding a little bit on that aspect Um, but you can really see that this message is being pushed in uh, state media that uh, the United States democratic process shows that democracy in that model the Western model you could say uh, is not suitable for countries around the world and what's happening uh, in the United States but also in the Netherlands for example shows for China in China's eyes that this is really not the case Um, and in state media of course uh, the message is very clear uh, that every negative event or every uh, chaotic event in the US is being used to prove this point again and again. Um, for example, in the Netherlands, uh, we've had elections and they're still forming a government after a month. So this is also something that uh, Chinese state media could use to show, uh, look, the democratic model as you say, uh, as you use it is not superior to the, the Chinese model, uh, where we at least have stability and capable leaders uh, at the top of the country.
1: Yeah, I find I, I find that you know a really interesting point. You know, because you could characterize this differently and say that it's actually a real strength. Um, in a country like the netherlands that basically you know if you live here you basically don't notice it doesn't have a government right you know i i you know on a day-to-day basis society works really well because there's a lot of of um strong non-political institutions like the civil service that that keep things ticking over but then one so one thing i think that we don't talk about enough or, or here in the west we just haven't really processed is that you know just the big differences in the response to the coronavirus in china and in the west and how effective china's response seems to have been you know that we are you know the the us is still struggling so mightily with the coronavirus pandemic and you know, of course, I you know, as an as an outsider, I find it a little bit hard to to kind of judge what's really happening in China because I understand that you know what I learn about comes through a, a you know a filter of, of censorship and, and and so forth. But um, you know, I, I wondered also if, if if China has emerged from the last four years feeling kind of so much prouder of its state capacity and its ability to deal with you know really really major problems like the pandemic in a way that western countries proved just so unable to do and you know and especially trump um and america proved so unable to do
0: um yes and the, the coronavirus uh was used by uh, uh the chinese government to show that the authoritarian model is more effective in uh Uh, responding to the coronavirus. Um, But one of the very obvious uh, countercases of that is uh, Taiwan and South Korea, uh, which are two places that uh, have used different methods uh, to suppress the coronavirus um, under a democratic system. Uh, So those two cases uh, really show the opposite of this message that China is pushing. Uh, At the same time, there is a lot of uh, attractiveness in this message that an authoritarian government is much more Uh, efficient in being able to make decisions and responding to the coronavirus. Uh, And you can see that also slowly being echoed more in uh, critics here in the Netherlands, um, that some agree uh, that um, the way that things are handled here are uh, not as efficient as they are handled in China. Uh, On the other hand, you also have people here saying that we shouldn't go in the direction of China because that would be an attack on personal liberty and personal freedoms. Um, But for China the response to the coronavirus and also um, how to respond to the coronavirus in other countries uh, is is being used as a PR method Um, and China really wants to position itself now as bringing the vaccine to countries around the world and helping others um, to fight against the coronavirus as well.
1: So sticking with this theme of the of the coronavirus and kinda of using this as a as a segue to talk about the Biden administration. So in kind of the, the, the plague year, the pandemic year of, of twenty twenty, American public opinion with regard to China shifted. Really rapidly, and over that year, we saw kind of the American public just became so so much more hostile towards China, became also more hostile towards um just in the idea of international trade and globalization. You know, because I think there was this link in people's mind that was drawn between trade and globalization, and you know that allows viruses to come here. And it seems to me, you know, that the 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 Biden administration really took note of of this kind of sharply critical turn towards China because. One thing that was so notable to me throughout the early months of the Biden administration was the extent to which they framed almost everything they did as somehow related to this competition with China. So it wasn't just foreign policy, but also domestic priorities as well, you know. So when you know Biden was was touting infrastructure legislation or he was talking about expanding unemployment insurance there was even a, a a speech that i read recently when he was speaking at a childcare center and while at this childcare center he starts giving a speech about great power competition and how you know we have to expand child care in america to help our middle class so that they can compete with china more effectively and you know, I think this kind of represents firstly really genuine anxiety in Washington about China's rise and about economic competition, but also kind of a political calculation that's been taken that that talking up this um this this competition with China can be a vote winner, right? That it's something that maybe can unite Americans against an external enemy. And I wondered if you know we see similar dynamics in in China that there's this kind of obsessive focus on the bilateral relationship with the US and particularly on the idea of competition with the US and a feeling that this rivalry can be very mobilizing and helpful for the government in terms of Chinese nationalism.
0: Yes, I believe you can see it in um, how the, the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, uh, is using nationalism to fuel support for its leadership as well. Uh, and of course, one way to show that uh, as a party you should be At the top of the the country and you should be in this leadership position uh, is by showing that you can make a strong fist against uh, enemies or or competitors like the united states so you see the ccp is really trying to balance on the one hand using the conflict with the united states to generate feelings of pride uh, for china itself uh, but on the other hand also not wanting to antagonize or wanting to um, escalate these feelings too much Because, of course, at the same time, the United States and China still have many areas where they will have to work together, uh, such as climate uh, or their economies are, are of course, still very much intertwined so far. And there has to be a balance between using nationalism uh, for support, um, but not fueling it too much that you won't be able to effectively pursue your policy goals um, uh, as you wish. Uh, And again, it's very difficult to... uh, to get statistics uh, on the, the Chinese uh, public opinion on these kind of views. Um, but there are some real genuine feelings, of course, of pride for the, their own country. Um, and this, the American self-power in China has also significantly decreased. Um, and sometimes this is uh, shown as brainwashing by the, the, the CCP, but there is this real genuine feeling of pride Uh, as well in the Chinese population. That's uh, not simply fueled by uh, evil plans to to use nationalism uh, for this purpose. Um, I think you can also see uh, in China's public policy uh, and relationships with other countries, that it does use this this rivalry with the United States uh, in its rhetoric, uh, to show that China is a better partner than the United States. Uh, sometimes in uh, more overt ways than others, and sometimes uh, there are remarks that are very obviously uh, directed towards the United States, um, which I'm not very sure if that's helpful in, for example, China's relationships with uh, European countries. Uh, but you can really see the uh, the U.S.-China relationship coming back in the rhetoric between the United States and the EU, uh, between China and the EU as well.
1: You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. So in, um, in the U.S., there's, there's a lot of debate about this idea of is there a new Cold War with China, right? People are always trying to kind of, of, of fit this relationship into the box that seems most appropriate to them, which is kind of the U.S.-Soviet rivalry. You know, what underlies a, a lot of that debate or a lot of the fears that people have about that debate is that the U.S. and China are somehow headed towards a military conflict and that, you know, the, the chief kind of goal that America should have is that it wants to try to contain China, shape China's behavior, but not end up in a war with China that could escalate quickly and, and perhaps become a nuclear war. And I, I wondered if, you know, we we had any sense of the extent to which the Chinese leadership is fearful of inadvertently stumbling into military conflict with the united states or or kind of you know worried that this competition may get out of hand in a way that they don't want to happen
0: yes you have this very funny situation right now where both the united states and china say they don't want to have a cold war and they accuse the other party of uh starting a cold war or pushing towards a cold war and you can see in uh Policies separate from rhetoric as well, um, that of course the relationship has very much soured and that uh, both sides are preparing for the worst. Um, it's different from the Cold War and that there is still some level of communication between uh, Beijing and Washington, although that is of course under the Trump administration also very much decreased compared to what it used to be. And you can see both sides trying to prepare for the worst, including militarily, where, of course, China is still focused on building up its own military, um, investing quite a lot in re- uh, reforming it and uh, improving it, um, which then in the United States is again seen as a, as a warning that the United States should do the same. So it's this classic uh, security dilemma uh, where you don't know uh, what the other side will do, so you prepare for the worst.
1: Yeah, and I, uh, I I would be remiss if I didn't mention hypersonic missiles right now, right? You know the so so China, I, I think as we're recording this, it was last week maybe um, tested a, a hypersonic missile, right? And this this kind of. Um, Set off a lot of chatter within the United States about nuclear competition between China and the U.S. So you know my my kind of basic understanding of of threat that's posed by the hypersonic missile is basically that it it's so fast that it um, could, would be able to strike the United States you know before the U.S. had warning enough to 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 launch back um, its own nuclear weapons now that's you know not actually really necessarily changing the strategic balance that much i don't think and west china has like a thousand of these hypersonic missiles you know and and was able to completely destroy the american nuclear arsenal you know which i i don't think is is really possible but there's a lot of there's a lot of jitters about this nuclear kind of aspect of the relationship anyway and i guess the so the one flashpoint that that we talk about so much and that i think people fear that there might be a conflict over which would lead to some really bad escalation is is of course Taiwan. And since we last spoke, and I remember we spoke about this a year ago, but but since then, you know, this same kind of patterns have continued. That Beijing has been continuing to pressure Taiwan. It's been carrying out these really big incursions into its and um, the Taiwanese air defense identification zone, increasingly involving more and more jets and bombers at, at once. And then on the other hand, so the Wall Street Journal recently reported that the U.S. has military trainers on the ground in Taiwan, something that China regards as as, as highly provocative. And all of this is, you know, at the same time, I'm starting to detect a, a real reticence or there's at least a discussion that, you know, I don't remember happening for quite some time in the US defense community about the this commitment to Taiwan that the US has. And, you know, increasingly many strategists uh, are sort of daring to say that perhaps Taiwan isn't worth a US defense, you know, that it isn't worth The United States attempting to block any uh, attempts by China to take over Taiwan, you know, just basically because the military calculus has shifted in a way that increasingly means the US might fail and it would be better just not to try than to try and fail. And also that, you know, fundamentally, they're arguing that nuclear deterrence um, extended over Taiwan just isn't credible because it's really just not credible to imagine that the U.S. is going to risk a nuclear weapon dropping on Los Angeles in in order to, to protect Taiwan. So there's just there's, there's a lot of, I've thrown a lot of stuff at the wall there and you know there's, there's, there's a lot happening uh, in this space at the moment and I just wondered what's your read on on this current situation you know in the triangle of, of the. US China and Taiwan.
0: Yes, it's very worrying to see that uh, tensions have been rising between China and Taiwan uh, in the previous uh, in the recent uh, months. Um, And as you said, you can really see this by, for example, more airplanes through the Taiwan's air defense identification zone and that there's also more intense rhetoric from both the Chinese side and the Taiwanese side on on the conflict. Um, And I think there's, for me, there's always a balance between wanting to create more awareness on uh, the Taiwan issue, but on the other hand, also not trying to fuel uh, a sense of insecurity that shouldn't be there or are trying to create a sense of alarmism without reason. And I think one of the good things uh, against that is to, to talk about the situation, but try and, and stick to the, to the facts as much as possible. And you can really see tensions, of course, rising uh, between China and Taiwan. Uh, but one thing that I think should be kept in mind is that uh, China is, of course, building up its military and will become more able, by doing that, uh, to stage an invasion into Taiwan, but that doesn't mean automatically that it will also make that move and that it will go in that direction um, to to uh, actually stage a military invasion. And for the coming years, it's very, of course, difficult to make a prediction on what's going to happen uh, and you don't want to be not cautious enough and then end up not being prepared for, for the worst. It can feel like a self uh, self-fulfilling prophecy where people are worried that the conflict might escalate um, and creating more alarmist feelings about it. What you have now is that both China and Taiwan state that they want to maintain the peace. And for Taiwan, that really means maintaining the status quo. And for China, that means, of course, still reunification with Taiwan, although through peaceful means, uh, and not through aggression, uh, uh, if that's not necessary. Um, and in the meantime, you see Taiwan also using this conflict itself to get more international support. Uh, and I think what you see is a lot of coverage is that Taiwan is being discussed as the object. while of course, it's also one of the players in the conflict. Uh, and one of the active roles that it takes uh, is to try and get more international support and lobby for its position. And it's reading the room and seeing that uh, China's soft power is rapidly decreasing around the world. And it sees a place for itself there to, to, to use that to lobby for its position. For example, uh, Taiwanese officials visited several European countries, eastern European countries, where relationships uh, with China have soured and trying to pursue, uh, persuade them to come to the other side. to to strengthen relationships with Taiwan. And how Taiwan really frames this conflict is that it's not just a conflict between Taiwan and China, but that it's a conflict between democracies on the one hand and authoritarianism on the other hand. And by framing it in this way, um, it creates pressure for democratic countries to join Taiwan and to support it more than they are doing at the moment. One of the other things, of course, that are relevant here is the American position uh, towards the conflict, which up until now is still a position of strategic ambiguity uh, where the United States will not explicitly state its intentions uh, uh, towards Taiwan or state what it will do. And there's been some confusing comments recently by uh, President Biden, for example, where in (laughs) October he explicitly said that the United States will come to Taiwan's defense because they have a commitment to do that, uh, which again created a lot of chatter because People thought, um, which commitment are we talking about? Does this mean that there is a change in policy or not? And after his statements, uh, a White House spokesperson came out to say that there is no actual change in foreign policy. And of course, this could be, this might be uh, on purpose to once again have this strategic ambiguity on what the United States will do. But on the other hand, it could really be uh, a foreign policy mistake as well with President Biden being too careless in his comments on on Taiwan and whichever one it really is in practice it means that there's more uncertainty for the for the players involved so of course Taiwan immediately reacted by asking for more clarity about this statement and China immediately had to react very negatively towards this comment
1: you're listening to America Explained a podcast about American politics foreign policy and culture for an international audience like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I found those gaffes, if indeed there were gaffes, made by Biden really interesting. I think he did it twice. And um, you know, the, the first time he did it, I thought, you know, okay, this could just be kind of Joe Ben Joe, because he, he often has trouble with kind of verbal discipline. The second time he did it, I became more inclined to believe that it was done purposefully. But of course, you know, I, I don't know that for sure. And, you know, well, none of us know that. So it's interesting that, you know, that, that if the, the Biden administration has in some ways been quite um, helpful towards Taiwan, so these these military trainers are still there. We've had these comments by Biden, you know, which seem to kind of uh, resolve strategic ambiguity in in a way that was uh, more helpful towards the Taiwanese elite, but one one area in which the you know Biden has not been helpful towards Taiwan at all is has has been trade. So the leadership leadership in Taipei has been pressing the U.S. for a trade deal, and and the U.S. has has kind of said no or they've said maybe later, and and you know in general it's been the case that the Biden administration's trade policy has been really quite strongly a continuation of 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 trump's trade policy you know we've also seen this in relations between uh us and china as well you know so and during the trump presidency you know just before the pandemic really kind of hit the west the us and china concluded this phase one trade agreement and then you know a a phase two that was supposed to happen uh, in the future never came and it's, it's not been discussed right now and we were left in this kind of sort of stasis where The U.S. still has quite heavy tariffs on China. And the Biden administration seems quite happy for for these to continue. So... um Catherine Tai, who's the U.S. Trade Representative, gave a speech um, last month where she really didn't announce much change at all in the U.S. trade policy towards China. I was anticipating this speech um, because I'm I'm actually writing something for a journal right now about Biden's uh, foreign economic policy, and the speech dropped, and I was like, oh well, there's nothing really to talk about here. At the same time, you know, the the U.S. hasn't made any steps to return to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, you know, which was this big big trade agreement. between uh, many countries on the Pacific Rim, which had also been kind of invested with geopolitical significance as well by the Obama administration, you know, as potentially a way of creating a a kind of economic bloc and maybe even a strategic bloc which would oppose China. So we seem to me just to, yeah, to be in this kind of of stasis in in US-Chinese economic relations and and I'm not really sure how to read what's happening right now. So I I wonder how you view the, the situation at the moment
0: Yes, it was really interesting indeed to read Catherine Tye's speech, which starts as I will speak about the new Biden-Harris policy on trade and then realizing that there is not really a new policy on trade, but that it's more a continuation of uh, of the same. I think the the subtle differences you could see is, of course, the rhetoric, the change in language, where there's more of a focus on multilateralism as well than in the Trump administration, which is not very difficult, of course. But there's no actual change in policies on the ground or removing any tariffs uh, between the United States and China. And we can see that the United States is looking into removing some of the tariffs, uh, what that would take, uh, which ones would be possible. And I think it was U.S. Treasury Secretary Yellen who also recently said that a reciprocal lowering of trade tariffs would be beneficial for both sides. It's also to fight inflation. Um, So they're pointing towards the way of easing out the conflict. But they, of course, cannot be shown as the weaker party and give up trade tariffs without having something in return to sell it to the domestic audience. And of course, in the meantime, China made a, a pledge to buy 200 billion U.S. dollars uh, in additional goods and services in this uh, trade agreement, which hasn't happened yet. So there is very little room for the United States to to ease up on these tariffs and to... Uh, Uh, to change his policies here. Um, What you could also detect from Tai's speech is that there is more of a focus on the United States itself rather than trying to change uh, the Chinese economy. Uh, It's become very clear, of course, that China is set on its path and will not change its policies uh, regardless of the United States' uh, foreign policy. Which means that the United States must in the first place focus on improving its own economy and focus on improving its own competitiveness to be able to compete with China.
1: Yeah, and I I was thinking about this too when um, just just a couple of days ago, the, the 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 latest figures for the US trade deficit were released. And the, the figures are enormous, you know, and I mean the you know the reason for that is because the, the US economy is roaring back and with the service sector still heavily affected by the COVID pandemic, you know, people are spending more and more money on goods, so imports are inflations up, up. And I was kinda happy that you know this these trade deficit figures didn't kick off an enormous debate about the trade deficit, which is what would have happened if Trump was still in power, right? Because he used the US trade deficit with China as as, as kind of a, a negative indicator of economic health. And you know, I think it's a really good point you make that the it's very really healthy that the US realize that fundamentally China's economic model is the thing that mostly affects China's international economic relations and, and particularly the trade relationship between the US and China. And, you know, US trade policy just does not have the power to convince Beijing to completely change direction in that way. And, you know, what I kind of read about um about what's happening in terms of economic policy in China right now is that you know the government seems to be increasingly doubling down on the the state element of this phrase state capitalism right and that there there is not this willingness to move towards liberalization that so many westerners had hoped for and that was kind of seen as an eventual solution to this problem and it kind of indicates to me that this the the irritants in the U.S.-Chinese economic relationship are, are going to remain for a long time, and it's something, you know, that we, American need to get used to. And it's also, though, uh, a potential cause of this instability that you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, that as soon as you have, God help us, we have Trump back in office in 2024, or someone who similarly is kind of an American economic nationalist, then these issues could really come, you know, kind of roaring back.
0: Yes, and I think what you could say about uh, the expectations on liberalisation in China uh, and this idea that through economic liberalisation China would also become more democratic uh, and change its political system were from the very beginning very flawed. And the United States and Europe also are slowly coming to terms uh, with this fact. And meanwhile China of course is still liberalising the economy, uh, but on its own terms. And uh, you could see that in the recent crackdown on tech or uh, its new common prosperity push, which is a push by also led by President Xi Jinping to create more equality in, in China itself and uh, try and fight this imbalance between the rich and the poor uh, in its own way. And China is still trying to liberalize the economy in certain aspects, but not not according to the, the path that uh, the United States would have liked to see it or that uh, Europe would have liked to see it. And you can see for the way forward as well that uh, China's policies really point towards making China more self-reliant uh, and as much self-reliant as possible, especially in crucial uh, sectors or uh, sensitive sectors.
1: Yeah. And I guess that the, these, these efforts that you talk about to increase economic equality in China, are potentially beneficial for the US-Chinese trade relationship in the long run because a larger domestic Market of consumers within China potentially means less uh, dumping of goods on the foreign market by um, by China. I mean, I think that's something that Western economists talk about a lot as, as kind of something that they would like to see in terms of you know China developing more its own internal market and relying less on this export led model of growth. I can look at this from the other point of view, which is that you know in 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 terms of um, maintaining peace between the two nations. I would rather have their economies intertwined, you know, that if chi- if decoupling does continue or does become a reality, China becomes much, much more self-sufficient. It becomes potentially more concerning that then a war between the two countries would have less economic cost for both sides because they wouldn't be so economically reliant on one another.
0: This uh, increased economic interdependence is indeed uh, something that will is not very likely to go away in in the short term. And uh, while well, speaking of decoupling, it's more realistic to also speak of partial decoupling or decoupling in, uh, for example, strategic key sectors uh, rather than decoupling as a whole which would be very costly and very painful for both the United States, uh, China, but also the world economy, of course.
1: Okay, well, um, thanks Shasha as always for these insights. It's been a really great conversation. I feel like we've covered a lot um, in, in this time. And uh, yeah, I really hope to be able to welcome you back on the show in the future to uh, update us again about the state of this relationship.
0: Thank you very much.
1: That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next
0: time.